Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 347 for October 23rd, 2023. We got a little bit of a different news show for you today. It's going to be a little bit abbreviated. I actually recorded this last Thursday. I usually do it on Saturday. So if there were any big stories that came out, any big security or privacy stories that hit on, uh, you know, late Thursday, Friday, uh, the reason I'm not mentioning them is because I don't know about them yet. But we're also going to do a little bit of an abbreviated news show this week, uh, fewer stories than normal, because I wanted to do a mailbag episode where I finally caught up on some user Dear Carry questions. Um, and just to be clear, when you guys send me Dear Carry questions, and you can find out how to do that by going to fdsd.me slash QNA, when you go there and you send me questions, I usually answer them by email right away. But if they're good questions and they're ones I want to share with the audience, then I will save them up and eventually get to them as the part of the mailbag. So just because I haven't answered these questions in a while, doesn't mean that I'm not actually answering the original poster of those questions. I'm just waiting to present them to you, the audience. So as I said, here's a quick uh, rundown for the news. We got an article from Gizmodo about how you definitely absolutely positively need to update WinRAR if this is something that you have on your system. Uh, and that you use, you should do that right away. And I'll tell you why. Got another great article from 404 Media about how hackers are trying to target companies that vet police data requests for tech giants. And that's kind of an interesting story. And then a story about how Google has been forced to release search history for users in kind of a blanket dragnet kind of way, but it passed the Colorado Supreme Court. And I hope actually this gets taken to the Supreme Court because I don't think they ruled the right way on that. Google has sent a notice to a lot of their users saying that passwordless or pass keys will be the default login mechanism and are pushing you to switch to that. But I'm going to tell you why you might want to hold off. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has recently published an open letter uh, request to MasterCard in particular to stop selling our user data. And I'll, I'll read that to you and then talk about Visa and Amex as well. And then finally, Bruce Schneier had a very interesting article about the risks of artificial intelligence that I wanted to share. And then we'll do the mailbag and then we'll do my tip of the week. So let's get right to it. All right, let's get it started with a quick article here from Gizmodo about WinRAR. Government-backed hackers from Russia and China exploited a known vulnerability in outdated versions of WinRAR. And that's, if you're curious, if you don't, haven't heard of this, it's spelled W-I-N, like is in Windows, W-I-N-R-A-R. And if you've never heard of that, a RAR file is kind of like a zip file. It's a compression style format that's been around for quite a while. Anyway, back to, back to the article. The WinRAR, the world's most popular compression tool with over 500 million users. Google's Threat Analysis Group, or TAG, said Wednesday it observed a number of government-backed hacking campaigns utilizing the WinRAR bug starting in early 2023. The vulnerability exists in all of RAR Lab's WinRAR products prior to version 6.23, released in August, shortly after the bug was discovered. The vulnerability was brought to light by uh, Group IB, identifying how hackers were able to infiltrate a finance forum full of traders, infect 130 of the forum members' devices, and withdraw funds from their brokerage accounts. And this is a quote from uh, Andre Palavinkin, uh, who's malware analysis at Group IB. And uh, Andre says, quote, the cyber criminals are exploiting a vulnerability that allows them to spoof file extensions. They are able to hide the launch of malicious scripts within an archive masquerading as .jpg, .text, or really any other file format, unquote. 
Google identified the Russian armed forces group Sandworm as the hacker exploiting this vulnerability in WinRAR's code. Sandworm specifically targeted users with some connection to the energy and defense sectors in Ukraine and uh, Eastern Europe through phishing campaigns. Another group, APT40, which has been linked to China's State Department, was identified by Google as launching a malicious campaign against Papua New Guinea. In a note on WinRAR's version 6.23, the first update to patch the bug, RAR Lab thanked Group IB and the Zero Day Initiative for making the firm aware of the vulnerability and, quote, highly recommends to install the latest version, unquote. It has long been understood that users don't update their software as much as they should, especially people who are not super comfortable using computers to begin with. So if you have this utility on your Windows machine, you probably know it because you probably downloaded it. I don't think it comes with Windows machines by default, but you might check to see if you have it installed. If you go to Windows and look up your applications that are installed, if you have WinRAR there, make sure you get it updated uh, because it can launch by double clicking the wrong file uh, and that's not what you want. So if you do have it installed, you definitely want to make sure it is up to date. Okay, next up, this is kind of a longer article from 404 Media. And it brings up a lot of interesting points that I don't know if people are aware of. So let's read the article and then we'll talk about it. Hackers are targeting accounts on Codex, that's spelled K-O-D-E-X, a platform that connects law enforcement agencies and tech companies and which is designed to verify emergency requests for customer data, according to multiple online conversations between hackers viewed by 404 Media. Screenshots from one of the compromised accounts shows a panel where a law enforcement officer or a hacker can potentially create a new request. The screenshots show a wide range of companies such as tech giants Meta, which is Facebook, and Microsoft's LinkedIn, cryptocurrency exchanges Binance and Coinbase, social media firms Pinterest, Discord, and Snapchat, financial service Fidelity, and gaming platform Roblox. The compromised account appears to belong to a national police force, but the screenshots do not show the agency's full name. One of the reasons Codex exists is that it does additional verification of requests tech companies receive from law enforcement. Hackers have increasingly posed as law enforcement officers with compromised government emails to then fraudulently demand sensitive data from target companies. Now, Codex itself, in its privileged position as a trusted party in that data supply chain, is the target. There is no evidence that hackers have successfully used compromised Codex accounts to obtain data from a tech company. And Matt Donahue, the former FBI agent and now CEO of Codex, said that multiple compromised accounts 404 Media found did not have authorization to make such requests, and that Codex had shut down those accounts. But the repeated examples of criminal chatter show that Codex is a target of interest for hackers. And this is a quote from Donahue, quote, because of our team's previous experience building account security and ATO detection capabilities, and I think in this case they're referring to uh, account takeover there with ATO, we're able to effectively monitor the Codex platform for suspicious activity. As a result, it's not uncommon for our global threat intelligence teams to be the ones alerting local law enforcement around the world that their agency's email has been compromised. When this happens, all Codex accounts registered with that agency are suspended and must be re-verified individually, unquote. Emergency data requests, or EDRs, are a tool used by law enforcement to, in, to obtain data from a company in situations where they believe they do not have time to obtain a subpoena, search warrant, or otherwise use a more ordinary legal mechanism. Examples might include a kidnapping or a terrorist attack. Traditionally, the process involves the law enforcement agent using their official email account to contact the company or filling out information on an online portal run by the company itself. 
hackers have spotted an opportunity to use EDRs for their own gains. Last year, cybersecurity journalist Brian Krebs reported on how criminals were using fake EDRs, including one case that targeted Discord. Bloomberg then reported that Apple and Meta have handed over data in response to similar fraudulent demands. Then in August, I reported hackers were selling access to compromised government email accounts for between $50 and $400, in some cases specifically for the purpose of filing fake EDRs with companies such as TikTok and Facebook. Codex's relatively recent role after launching in February of 2021 is to act as a middleman in those data requests. Codex does this by assigning something like a credit rating to each law enforcement entity, an earlier Krebs article explains. And that's a link to this article. Officials who have a long history of sending valid legal requests will have a higher rating, as opposed to someone who may be sending an EDR for the first time, the article reads. And this is a quote from Donahue again, and this is what he told Krebs back in this article, quote, In those cases, we warn the customer with a flash on the request when it pops up that we're allowing this to come through because the email was verified as being sent from a valid police or government domain name. But we're trying to verify the emergency situation for you, and we'll change that rating once we get new information about the emergency, unquote. In the comments of that article, one reader noted, quote, Codex should assume it is the target of serious espionage groups, unquote. And Donahue replied, quote, this has always been top of mind from day one, unquote. Now, something like that is happening, according to 404 Media's findings. Multiple listings don't just show the hackers have compromised Codex accounts, but are advertising them for sale to others who may want to make fraudulent EDRs. So the article goes on for a little bit, but it kind of just restates some things I was saying before. So I wanted to read this because I wanted to bring your attention to the fact that A, this exists, and B, just kind of comment again about all these companies that are creating markets for themselves by being being data brokers, basically, uh, is kind of what these guys are doing. They have made a market for themselves as being a broker, a go-between between these law enforcement agencies and the tech companies to facilitate these emergency data requests, which, of course, makes them a prime target by hackers and nation states and anybody who might want to use this process to kind of get around uh, the normal legal process that takes a long time and a lot of effort and legal footwork, you know, to get subpoenas and warrants and things like that. This, this is a kind of a backdoor process, which I understand what it's for. I understand that there are cases where time is of the essence and we don't have time to go to a judge to get a subpoena. And they're kind of asking these companies, Hey, look, this is an emergency situation. We don't have time for this. Please give us the information. And I give these guys some credit. They're trying to do some things like they're they're establishing a trust rating for these for these various companies, though it sounds to me like the trust rating is based on the entire domain name, like in other words, for the entire agency and not for specific people, though, you know, maybe that's just been kind of glossed over here and I and I'm not sure. But, you know, so they're so they're trying to do the right things here, but yet uh, the fact of the matter is it is now just one more place, one more avenue, one more target uh, an extended attack surface for people to get potentially very sensitive information uh, about you and me bypassing uh, a lot of the protections that are put in place to you know keep that data private all right next up this is from TechSpot, and it's about a recent uh, supreme court ruling in the state of colorado the colorado supreme court has upheld a search warrant that involved the examination of google's users keyword history to identify suspects in a fatal 2020 arson fire the decision has drawn criticism from privacy advocates, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation, 
which wants a full ban on keyword warrants. In the case of Seymour versus Colorado, Denver police executed a search warrant that required Google to provide the IP addresses of anyone who had searched for the address of a home within the previous 15 days of it being set on fire. The attack killed five Senegalese immigrants, including an infant and a toddler. ABC News writes that Google wasn't quick to reply with the request due to potential violations of its privacy policy, but the company eventually relented and handed over the IP addresses without any matching names. There were 61 searches made by eight accounts, five of which were based in Colorado. Police obtained the locals' names through another search warrant, eventually identifying three teens as subjects. Police say that one of the boys, Gavin Seymour, had used Google to search for the property's address multiple times before the fire. His lawyer asked for the evidence to be thrown out as it violated the Fourth Amendment's ban on unreasonable searches and seizures by not targeting a specific person suspected of a crime. It's noted that the police investigation had gone cold, leading them to seek the reverse keyword warrant to identify possible subjects. While the court said Seymour had a constitutionally protected privacy interest in his Google search history and assumed the warrant was, quote unquote, constitutionally defective for not specifying a, quote, individualized probable cause, unquote, the justices decided in a split decision that the police acted in good faith, meaning the evidence will be allowed in court despite the warrant being legally flawed. Monica Marquez, one of the dissenting judges, wrote, quote, Today, the court blesses law enforcement's use of a powerful new tool for the digital age, the reverse keyword warrant. The warrant here was invalid, and the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule cannot salvage its unconstitutionality, unquote. The EFF and the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, filed amicus briefs highlighting the privacy implications of reverse keyword warrants. The EFF states that these warrants have the potential to implicate innocent people or target those who search for information about abortion in states where it is criminalized. Google said in a statement that it was important that the court's ruling recognize the privacy and First Amendment interests involved in keyword searches. And this is a quote from a Google rep who said, quote, with all law enforcement demands, including reverse warrants, we have a rigorous process designed to protect the privacy of our users while supporting the important work of law enforcement, unquote. So again, this is the same kind of slippery slope argument that, you know, look, I mean, the police had run into a dead end. The, the case had gone cold. There was five people killed, which is obviously horrific, including some children, which is just horrible, in an arson fire. And this was murder by arson. And they had gotten nowhere. And so as a last resort, they basically went to Google and said, okay, well, let's, let's assume that whoever did this was trying to figure out where these people lived. And they probably used your search service to do that. So tell us everybody who searched for this house address, which apparently turned up a lot of people who weren't guilty, right? They said, they said it turned up a lot of searches uh, for, for uh, eight different accounts, only five of which were actually in Colorado. So all those people were basically implicated in this crime. Though only, uh, you know, one or two or three of them may have actually been one of these teens suspected of doing the crime. You got to think of how else this might be used. And, you know, an EFF gave one example there about abortion rights. But these like geofence warrants uh, are dragnet searches and they are not targeted by exact people. They, they by definition of a dragnet, they, they capture a lot of innocent people along with maybe suspects. So as always with these sorts of things, it's a, you know, it's a murky subject. There's obvious cases where it would benefit us, but we have to look at the bigger picture here and decide whether or not we really want these sorts of dragnet searches to be available to law enforcement where it might be used for 
purposes that harm the greater good. So this was in Colorado. I, I didn't read in this article whether or not it was going to be uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. I don't, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know that everything can be appealed to the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens with that. But uh, it's an interesting legal precedent to keep an eye on. All right, another story about Google. And this one, actually, I'm going to read a little bit of a press release they just had. You probably saw this recently if you're a Google user, because I think they sent this to, to all uh, all of Google users. But I want to read a little bit from this and then uh, give you some some of my thoughts. And this, again, this is a press release from Google. Earlier this year, we rolled out support for passkeys, a simpler and more secure way to sign into your accounts online. We've received really positive feedback from our users. So today we're making passkeys even more accessible by offering them as the default option across personal Google accounts. This means the next time you sign into your account, you'll start seeing prompts to create and use passkeys, simplifying your future sign-ins. It also means you'll see the, quote, skip password when possible, unquote, option toggled on in your Google account settings. To use passkeys, you just use a fingerprint, face scan, or PIN to unlock your device, and they are 40% faster than passwords, and rely on a type of cryptography that makes them more secure. But while they're a big step forward, we know that new technologies take time to catch on, so passwords may still be around for a little while. That's why people will still be given the option to use a password to sign in, and may opt out of passkeys by turning off skip password when possible. And in this article, it's actually a link, which I assume would take you to that setting in your Google account. So if you're curious, you can uh, get to the show notes, go to this article, find that link. Since launching earlier this year, people have used passkeys on their favorite apps like YouTube, Search, and Maps, and we're encouraged by the results. We're even more excited to see the growing adoption of passkeys across industry. Recently, Uber and eBay have announced passkeys, giving people the option to ditch passwords when signing in on their platforms, and WhatsApp compatibility will be coming soon. We'll keep you posted on where else you can start using passkeys across other online accounts. In the meantime, we'll continue encouraging the industry to make the pivot to passkeys, making passwords a rarity and eventually obsolete. So uh, a few things I want to say about this. First of all, unfortunately, I don't think passwords are going to go obsolete anytime soon. Not because passkeys are usable, not because the support for passkeys isn't going to roll out and be you know available in most places. But sadly, I think what's probably going to happen is the passwords are still going to be the backup for passkeys. And again, I don't want to go into all what passkeys are, but just at a very high level, passkeys are kind of a combination really between biometric two-factor authentication and passwords. Your device generates a public and private key pair, keeps the private one and uses a public one uh, with the site you're logging into, which has some really great benefits. I've talked about this before. Uh, it basically means there's nothing to steal at the site you're logging into. They don't have to worry about storing these passwords or somebody, you know, do a data breach getting a hold of those passwords because those public keys are public for a reason. It doesn't matter if you have them. You need the private key for it to work. So I mean, that's all That's all great. I think the technology behind passkeys is, is pretty darn cool. And the biometric part, by the way, uh, is the way you typically unlock these things is the private keys are stored locally uh, on your device, and then you allow them to be used to respond to a challenge from the site you're logging into by unlocking them with your biometrics, by using your face ID, your fingerprint, or if none of those work, uh, entering a PIN code. But I think that most people are not going to be comfortable having that as their only mechanism. And so we're going to have passwords as the fallback for a long time, which means that as long as passwords are there for a fallback, you know, the weakest link is always the one you're worried about. So until passwords go away entirely and we don't even have them as a backup mechanism, you know, passwords are still going to be around. 
But there's another concern I have with this particular thing, and that is right now we don't have a really good cross-platform or a platform-independent mechanism for synchronizing and backing up these new pass keys, the, 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 the private keys. Right now, they're tied to the device on which you're logging in from, which means you could potentially have a different pair of pass keys for Amazon on your iPhone versus your iPad versus your Mac. Uh, or your Android phone, or your Windows PC, or whatever. And the problem being that while Apple, Google, and Microsoft are coming up with mechanisms that allow you to either back these up securely to the cloud, or securely synchronize them between your devices without actually storing anything in the cloud, which is a, a necessary feature, what it does right now is lock you into those services because of that. So it Google kind of pushing this now before a cross-platform solution is available. In other words, a version of this feature or, or service that works on Apple and Microsoft and Google, as opposed to Apple or Microsoft or Google. Until we have something that works on all of those, these companies coming out and kind of pushing you to go with theirs, and Apple's done this too, by the way, and so is Microsoft. Um, but by pushing you to go with theirs, they're kind of locking you in with them so that if if they get enough people doing this enough times on enough services, and then somebody says, oh, hey, look at this, look over here, I've got something that works on all these devices, come use this instead, people are going to be like, well, but I've already got all my stuff, <laughs> I've already all got my stuff in Google, or I've already got all my stuff in Apple, so I'm just going to stick with them. So I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing until, because we don't have this cross-platform solution out yet, what you're seeing is the the big company is trying to lock you in um, by making it really convenient. In fact, making it the default in Google's case to use pass keys, uh, which is going to get you kind of locked into their ecosystem so that when cross-platform solutions come out, it'll be, you'll be less likely to switch to them. So anyway, my two cents, keep these in mind as these options are being presented to you by, you know, Google, Microsoft, and Apple. All right, next up, uh, an article here from Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's about MasterCard, and I'm not sure why it's only about MasterCard, but let me read this and then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts. We trust companies with our information every day, but many companies, even those that hold our most revealing information, are using it not just to provide the services we ask for, but to amp up their profits at the cost of our privacy. That's why EFF has joined a campaign led by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, or PIRG, to call on MasterCard to limit its data collection and stop selling cardholder information. MasterCard is just one company that profits from the sale of personal data collected from the people who trust them with their information. As consumer advocates, we're calling on the company to honor the trust that cardholders place in them by committing to stop selling their information. Why make this ask of MasterCard? As USPIRG explains in its report accompanying the campaign, the company's position as a global payments technology company affords it, quote, access to enormous amounts of information derived from the financial lives of millions, and its monetization strategies tell a broader story of the data economy that's gone too far, unquote. Knowing where you shop just by itself can reveal a lot about who you are. MasterCard takes this a step further, as USPRG reported, by analyzing the amount and frequency of transactions, plus the location, date, and time to create categories of cardholders and make inferences about what type of shopper you may be. In some cases, this means predicting who's a quote-unquote big spender, or which cardholders MasterCard thinks will be quote-unquote high value, predictions used to target certain people and encourage them to spend more money. These kinds of actions work against the trust that many people have for the company that issues their card. 
In fact, the Bank for International Settlements found that people trust traditional financial institutions with their data more than big tech companies, government bodies, or fintech firms. When people get a card from MasterCard, they do not anticipate the ways the financial profile of their purchases will be remixed, repackaged, and used against them. Microsoft can and should do better. We call on the company to respect the trust and privacy of its cardholders and change its current data practices. So uh, Visa and Amex do this too, right? I mean, so does your bank and your pharmacy and your grocery store and just about everybody. But I mean, I think EFF's point here is that I don't think a lot of people necessarily think about their credit card company doing this. And think of, I mean, we buy just about everything today with credit cards. So your credit card company knows a lot about what you purchase, not just what it is, how, but how, you know, where you purchase it, how expensive it is, when you purchased it, you know, physically where you were when you purchased it, whether you were online, even uh, they could look at your IP address or whether you were in a brick and mortar store. A, a lot of that is seriously private and sensitive information and could be abused. Now, I read an article that Visa had this thing called Ad Solutions, which was using this kind of data to prime advertising, and they shut that down a few years ago. I don't know that that necessarily means that they've stopped collecting data or maybe stopped selling it to data brokers. They just shut down their personal ad business. So as far as I know, Visa is doing this too, as is probably Amex. I even read an article uh, as I was researching this that said that some of this data is sold to hedge funds and investment firms, probably anonymized, probably in aggregate. But nevertheless, they're selling this this uh, financial purchase data to these investment firms to give them insights into market trends. Now, this is something you and I can't do. I mean, I don't think you and I could go to Visa or Strickard or Amex and said, hey, I want to make better investments in my personal day trading. I want access to the information, too. And even if you had the money to do it, I'm not sure that an individual person could get access to that. So it seems kind of unfair, but we should just not be doing this at all. And I agree with the FF. Uh, we need data fiduciary laws. We, these guys should not be able to use this data for their own benefits. Uh, I, I'm sure they're, they've told us, I'm sure they've quote unquote, gotten our consent somewhere in our terms of service. There must've been something that let them do this. But I mean, really, do we, did you have a choice? I mean, if you, if your only option to get a credit card is to let them sell your data, then that's not really a choice. All right. So one more article here before I get to the mailbag and my tip of the week. And this is from Bruce Schneier. It's a blog he recently wrote that was also uh, published, I think, in the New York Times or somewhere. And it's about the risks of artificial intelligence. So let me just read uh, excerpts from this, which is basically like the beginning and the end parts. Um, and then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts as usual and recommend that you, <laughs> you read the whole thing if you're interested. But it's got some really interesting commentary, I think, on the discussion and some of the FUD, maybe, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt uh, that's being peddled around artificial intelligence. There's no shortage of researchers and industry titans willing to warn us about the potential destructive power of artificial intelligence. Reading the headlines, one would hope that the rapid gains in AI technology have also brought forth a unifying realization of the risks and the steps we need to mitigate them. The reality, unfortunately, is quite different. Beneath almost all of the testimony, the manifestos, the blog posts, and the public declarations issued about AI are battles among deeply divided factions. Some are concerned about far future risks that sound like science fiction. Some are genuinely concerned by the practical problems that chatbots and deepfake video generators are creating right now. Some are motivated by potential business revenue, others by national security concerns. 
The result is a cacophony of coded language, contrary views, and provocative policy demands that are undermining our ability to grapple with the technology destined to drive the future of politics, our economy, and even our daily lives. These factions are in dialogue not only with the public, but also with one another. Sometimes they trade letters, opinion essays, or social threads outlining their positions and attacking others in public view. More often, they tout their viewpoints without acknowledging alternatives, leaving the impression that their enlightened perspective is the inevitable lens through which to view AI. But if lawmakers and the public fail to recognize the subtext of their arguments, they risk missing the real consequences of our possible regulatory and cultural paths forward. To understand the fight and the impact it may have on our shared future, look past the immediate claims and actions of the players to the greater implications of their points of view. When you do, you'll realize that it isn't a debate only about AI. It's also a contest about control and power and how resources should be distributed and who should be held accountable. Beneath this rolling discord is, is a true fight over the future of society. Should we focus on avoiding the dystopia of mass unemployment, a world where China is the dominant superpower, or a society where the worst prejudices of humanity are embodied in opaque algorithms that control our lives? Should we listen to wealthy futurists who discount the importance of climate change because they're already thinking ahead to colonies on Mars? It is critical that we begin to recognize the ideologies driving what we're being told. Resolving the fracas requires us to see through the specter of AI to stay true to the humanity of our values. One way to decode the motives behind the various declarations is through their language. Because language itself is part of our battleground, the different AI camps tend not to use the same words to describe their positions. One faction describes the dangers posed by AI through the framework of safety, another through ethics or integrity, yet another through security, and others through economics. By decoding who is speaking and how AI is being described, we can explore why these groups differ and what drives their views. And this is where he goes into the three categories of, of people he's, he's talked about in this article. And it's very interesting, but I'm going to skip that part and just jump to the end. Regulatory solutions do not need to reinvent the wheel. Instead, we need to double down on the rules that we know limit corporate power. We need to get more serious about establishing good and effective governance on all the issues we lost track of while we were becoming obsessed with AI, China, and the fights picked among robber barons. By analogy to the healthcare sector, we need an AI public option to truly keep AI companies in check. A publicly directed AI development project would serve to counterbalance for-profit corporate AI and help ensure an even playing field for access to the 21st century's key technology while offering a platform for the ethical development and use of AI. Also, we should embrace the humanity behind AI. We can hold founders and corporations accountable by mandating greater AI transparency in the development stage, in addition to applying legal standards for actions associated with AI. Remarkably, this is something that both the left and right can agree on. Ultimately, we need to make sure the network of laws and regulations that govern our collective behavior is knit more strongly, with fewer gaps and greater ability to hold the powerful accountable, particularly in those areas most sensitive to our democracy and environment. As those with power and privilege seem poised to harness AI to accumulate much more or pursue extreme ideologies, let's think about how we could constrain their influence in the public square rather than cede our attention to their most bombastic nightmare visions of the future. So again, this is a much longer article. Uh, in it, he breaks down what he calls the doomsayers, the reformers, and the warriors uh, into th kind of three camps and how they talk about and how they're trying to frame the discussion around AI 
to basically further their own ends. Some of these ends are altruistic, if maybe misguided. Some of them are just pure profit and power. This is another massively disruptive technology. A lot of people are calling it like the fourth industrial age and like the internet was the third. I forget what the second was, but this is another very transformational, very impactful technologies. And, and it's really just kind of coming on, coming on the scene now. I mean, the concept's been around for years, but until like chat GPT and some of these other kind of things were released last year, uh, I mean, that, that was a huge step forward, a, a, a very significant update in our usage of this, uh, uh, this technology and our understanding of, of what its capabilities are and what it can do. So like any potential crisis, there are going to be people that are going to try to use that crisis for their benefit. Some knowingly, some maybe unconsciously, but nevertheless, we, we really need to keep in mind how these people making these statements may or may not benefit from us believing what they're saying. And I don't mean that to imply that it's a conspiracy, that what they're saying is necessarily false, but they do tend to color certain things one way uh, or as being more important than others and downplay others. And, and so anyway, it's, it's very nuanced. It's a, it's a study in critical thinking. And I just thought this was a, an interesting article to make us aware that we, <laughs> that we need to be uh, on our guard when hearing any FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt around the technology of AI and how we should control it, regulate it, charge for it, etc. Again, it's a really good article. It's much longer. Uh, I would recommend reading it, not just because of the parts I didn't read, but also he's got, as usual, and and Bruce's blogs, links to a lot of other supporting uh, information. So if you're interested in this at all, uh, definitely check out the original article. All right. So I've been promising this for a while. It's time to do Carrie's mailbag. Uh, and I'm going to answer three different uh, Dear Carrie questions that have been collecting over the past few months. And again, I already responded to the, these people in email, so they've got their answers a long time ago. But I think these are interesting questions and bring up interesting topics. And so I thought they would be illustrative. And so I brought them up here in the mailbag. Let's start off with the first one. And this is Dwayne Dune from Georgia. So I'm going to read some of what uh, Dwayne says here, and I'll paraphrase a little bit of this. And he asks, what free resources are out there to make privacy more convenient other than what you have on your website? And I do have several resources on my website and, of course, lots of blog articles. And he says, Andy Yen from Proton talks about how he wanted Proton Technologies to have a suite of services, not just email. And Google has so much to offer and Bard AI will now even connect to Gmail. And that is very convenient. And he kind of goes on to talk about photo storage and, and word processing, etc. So I thought it was good timing for this. We just talked to Andy Ann about this. And also, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some alternatives to Google products in today's tip of the week. So what I will say is that there are several alternatives out there. And I did a whole series of articles on de-Googling your life or reducing your Google footprint. And really what I mean by that is finding you know, privacy-respecting alternatives to a lot of Google's most popular products. You can get to the main article, actually, if you go to my short link, fdsd.me slash dgoogle. That's D-E and then Google. Or if you just search for Google on firewallsdontstopdragons.com, you will find the articles there, too. But in those articles, and there's about five of them, uh, I go through things like Google Search, uh, Chrome Browser, Android, Gmail, Contacts, Calendar, Meet slash Hangouts, which is not that popular anymore, Google Authenticator, YouTube, Maps and Waze, those are all Google. Uh, Google Docs and Google Drive, I go through basically all of those, uh, and I think a few, even a few others, and kind of help you find privacy-respecting alternatives to all of those. But it's hard. Google has a lot of different services. 
And though most of them are fairly secure, they are just not at all private. Google harvests so much information about us. And that is something else that if you don't believe me, you can go check it yourself. Google gives you the option, uh, thanks to, I think, GDPR in the EU, gives you the option to download all of your data. Google has a service that they call Takeout. You can actually go to takeout.google.com. Uh, that will help you download your data. I would recommend you do it and, and take the time to go through it because I think it'll just blow your mind. But just if nothing else, just trust me, they, they know a lot about you and they remember it all. So I suggested some of these things to Dwayne, some, so some of those extra resources on my website, and now I'm recommending them to you. All right, next up, uh, this one says, Hi, my name is Math, and I'm from Northern Europe, and I recently bought a hardware security key because I heard you and others recommend this to improve your operational security. My question involves the privacy of these keys. From what I understand, they are recognized instantly by the computer as a USB HID device class, which basically means keyboard, imp human input device. Can these be uniquely tracked when you register them to online services like Facebook or Google by data brokers? So I think it's an interesting question, and I'm going to answer it a couple of different ways. First of all, the way these keys kind of work, these YubiKeys and others like them, is you plug them into a USB port on your computer that when you touch it, it, it gives up a key. But they act like a keyboard. You, you, you touch this, and it, it basically types it into the blank. So in that sense, it's not really, I don't believe, recognizable. I would... I would have to look into the really nitty-gritty details of the API for HID, uh, human input devices, to find out if perhaps, perhaps like it can, the web page is able to query some sort of a serial number or identifier. But I think the bigger point here, though, is if you're logging into a service using these, they've already got a relationship with you and they already know something about you. So what I would be more worried about is if it would be possible for any web page you visit to query your keyboards and devices looking for unique IDs. And that is something I would have to do some serious looking into. I would hope that is not the case, but if anybody out there knows differently, let me know and I'll, and I'll bring it back up on the show. But my guess is that the web pages you visit through things like JavaScript and so on should not be able to query your hardware devices, your peripherals on your devices to get unique IDs. Because otherwise, if they could, they could fingerprint you by basically looking at anything on your computer that has a unique ID. Uh, I would certainly hope that is not the case. And I would think by now we would have heard if <laughs> we would have heard from somebody if that were the case. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say probably not. But if I find out different, I will definitely let you guys know. But it was a very interesting question and it definitely made me think. All right, and finally, this is one from David from Long Island. And uh, he had a very specific question, but I think what's more uh, instructive here is, uh, is generally how I approached his response. So he said, can you help me with how to do a common vulnerability and exposure assessment on Insteon lighting systems? I am not sure how to check it. I had identity theft this year, and this company, Insteon, was bankrupt and then sold. Can you help me assess it if it is safe and how to make it more secure? So there definitely is a concern anytime a company with your personal data is sold to another company or if they go bankrupt. In both cases, that data could potentially be passed on to someone else. In a bankruptcy case, oftentimes that data is looked at as an asset that has value that creditors want sold to recoup as much value as they can. And I would think that any company that buys another company would be subject to the original company's promises in, in terms of things like privacy policy, but... Again, I am not a lawyer and I don't know that, that, how that works exactly. And I am prepared to be utterly disappointed in our legal system that that may not be the case. 
But here's here's the other part of this that I that I took to heart and that I spent some time on. So first of all, what I did here is as I searched for the company Insteon and the acronym CVE, uh, which is the the beginning prefix to all of the um, the recorded common vulnerabilities uh, for software that we keep track of uh, on internet databases. So searching on Insteon and CVE, I would hope would turn up news articles where maybe the company Insteon or their products were mentioned alongside a known vulnerability. And I did actually find one. And the one I found was CVE 2017-16252. And the key part about that is 2017, which uh, in all CVE naming is the year in which it was discovered. So what that does mean from his perspective is that he is has devices that are on his network that have known vulnerabilities. So he, so the first thing I did is told him to make sure he updates the software on those devices uh, to get them updated. But because the company looked like it actually was shut down and then maybe came back out of bankruptcy or something, you know, that's not a great track record for a company that you're hoping is working on security fixes for, for vulnerabilities. So, you know, there's a little bit to worry about there. Also, I was recommending that he put these things on his guest network to keep them separate from, you know, more juicy targets like his, you know, cell phones and computers. So some segregation there to keep them separate in case they do get infected or compromised. But then I also recommended one more thing to him because he actually, I think, had some of these devices hooked up directly to his Wi-Fi router. In other words, to the ports, the physical ports, the Ethernet ports on the back of his router, which I don't know how many of those support having... Uh, physical Ethernet ports only for guest network. I would guess that most of those ports are for their actual main network. So the other thing I said he could do if he had some old routers lying around is there's something called a three-dumb router solution. And this is sort of a hardware-based guest network. Like you take uh, another router, you've got your main Wi-Fi router, and on, a, on the back are some Ethernet ports that go to, you know, presumably all those ports are for your main network and not your guest network. But if you hang another router off of that, Wi-Fi or otherwise, but probably Wi-Fi since you're doing this for IoT devices, if you were to hang another router off of that one, off of one of those ports, so the output of your first router goes as the input to your second router, uh, that second router anything on that router should not be able to route traffic or see traffic from the main network. It's kind of isolated because in that router is another firewall on that that should prevent uh, any traffic going between those two directly. And then the three dumb router solution, it's a, you can actually do this with two, uh, but the three dumb router solution is actually you have one simple router that's not Wi-Fi that does nothing more than um, has the, the NAT function in it. Uh, and then you hang two separate routers off of that. I don't think you actually have to do that. I think you can get by with uh, with just the two. But anyway, if you want to search for three dumb routers, uh, you'll find information on the web on how to hook something like that up. So a nice question and end up having lots of different interesting cybersecurity responses. So that's why I picked it for reading on today's mailbag. All right, actually, I lied. There's one, there's one more here. And this is Mike from Northwest Georgia. Uh, and Mike says, what are the real benefits of using ProtonMail or Tutanota if you email people who don't? And so that actually leads right into my tip of the week. And since we just talked to Andy from Proton, and since I had this question that I wanted to answer, I ended up doing my whole tip of the week and my blog post this week on trying out Proton. So let's transition to my tip of the week, and I'll answer Mike's question along the way. So again, I try not to do infomercials. I try, I try not to harp on particular products, but there are just some out there that I, I do call out and specifically. Signal, obviously, is one of them. It's just a gold standard for messaging. 
And today I'm going to kind of add to that Proton. So uh, it used to be Proton Mail when it first came out, Proton in 2014, uh, they only had email. And so it was Proton Mail. And so they've since added other features to their secure and private suite of tools. And so they have now just called themselves Proton because they've got more products than just email. But basically email, what it was written like decades ago, like it started really the protocols that define email uh, started back in the early 1980s. And we've been using those effectively ever since. And they just were not built, you know, 40 years ago or whatever with security and privacy in mind. And we've tried to bolt on some solutions to that over the years. And it just honestly has not been very effective. Phil Zimmerman, who I have interviewed a few times now, it developed pretty good privacy or PGP in the early 90s to address this very problem because he was an activist and he wanted activists around the world, not just himself, to be able to communicate with one another securely and privately without, you know, being able to be surveilled. And so he came up with this really cool product called Pretty Good Privacy or PGP. And it was, it was very humble. Obviously, it turns out it was extremely good privacy. And to this day, it's still very, very secure. It's not ideal, but it's still secure. Uh, and in fact, Phil will even tell you, and he told me uh, in one of our interviews that he doesn't use PGP anymore. And people laugh when he says that. And a lot of people think he's joking, but he, he doesn't. He, he actually prefers things like Signal for secure communications today. These modern technologies have some more interesting aspects to them from a security and privacy standpoint in particular that he feels are worth using. And honestly, PGP is just kind of clunky. It's kind of hard to use. But there are newer, more modern options, even some that use PGP under the covers, like Proton, that are secure by default and are dead simple to use. And uh, there are several services out there. Uh, you know, Tutanota is one, that, and that's one that the, the listener mentioned. Mailbox.org is one. Uh, Startmail has a secure email service. Skiff is an interesting kind of a newer option. And of course, ProtonMail. And what you really want from your service is you want encryption by default, end-to-end -end encryption by default. Most emails today uh, are encrypted in transit. That is the, the transmission of the data of the email. The transmission of that data is itself encrypted, meaning that as it's hopping along the internet through various computers and servers to its final destination, the computers along the way cannot see what's in it. Now, some of that encryption is point to point, and that's, and that's the case with most emails, because let's say Google can read the contents of your Gmail while it is encrypted between your computer and Google so that nobody between the two of you can see it. So it's end-to-end -end encrypted in the sense it's, it's between you and Google it's encrypted, but it's not encrypted at Google. Uh, well, I'll take that back. It probably is encrypted at rest on their storage drives, but they hold the encryption keys. So Google can still read your email. And if you send an email from Google to, let's say, Outlook, then now both Google and Microsoft have readable copies of your email, encrypted all along the path, encrypted while they're storing it, but they have the keys, they can still read it. So what you really want is end-to-end -end encryption, true end-to-end -end encryption, which means that only the sender and the recipient can see the contents of the email. And that is what all these services that I just mentioned have. But of all these, and I've tried them all, by the way, of all these, my favorite still is ProtonMail. So why is it my favorite? Well, it's got a lot of really great things going for it. So first of all, it has come a long way since uh, it first started. If you tried it a long time ago, it has definitely changed and gotten better. It looks much more modern. The interface is very slick. Uh, it's like, you know, Gmail and Outlook and other modern web apps. I think it's just as good as those which is important. I don't want to downplay that at all. In fact, I think it's crucial. It should be very easy to use. It should be very intuitive. 
uh, and it needs to kind of look modern or people aren't going to like it, right? So I, I think that is important. And, and Proton has come a long way. Proton is also cross-platform. It's available uh, on basically any web browser, including mobile web browsers. But it's also got an iOS app and an Android app. Sometimes they're a little laggy on some of their features, but they definitely exist. And you can even use it on Mac and Windows with your favorite mail client like Apple Mail or Outlook. It does require a special other install called a Proton Mail Bridge, which isn't that hard to set up, but it's kind of a, a proxy, a, a proxy for Proton because Proton itself is encrypted. And so it needs to kind of locally decrypt that so that your mail client can, can read the mail. Proton is also open source, or at least source available, which means that third parties can, and they have vetted their code. There have been third-party audits, which, which they've conducted, which I think is great. ProtonMail supports PGP via uh, OpenPGP, and it uses other top-notch encryption protocols that are standard, that have been vetted, that are battle-tested. That's all great. And you can even do ProtonMail with end-to-end -end encryption to non-Proton email users. So in other words, you can send an encrypted mail from Proton to Gmail. Now, there's some hoops to jump through to do that, but at least it's possible. And it also has PGP built in. If you're talking with someone else who's not using Proton but is capable of, of doing public and private key encryption with PGP, it'll work with that too. And then two more things uh, that I think are interesting and important. Uh, first of all, Proton makes it really easy and simple to import your email from other services like Gmail. So if you really want to switch whole hog, if you want to get out of Gmail entirely and take everything to Proton, you, you can take your history with you. Proton has tools that allow you to switch and bring over email history from another service if you wish. I think that's crucial for some people. And finally, as Andy talked about last week, both their employees and the data are stored in Switzerland, which has very strong privacy laws. Now, there are some cons. I'm not saying ProtonMail is perfect. For example, I guess there's a quirk with open PGP or maybe PGP in general. The way it works is uh, some of the email headers uh, are not encrypted, including the subject line for some reason. So uh, this is something to keep in mind if you're worried about, you know, sending, <laughs> you know, don't send I'm going to rob a bank as your subject line in an email for the ProtonMail and expect that to not be seen by law enforcement if they come knocking. Also, if you do want to use like Apple's Mail program or Outlook or one of those email clients, if you've got an email client on Windows or Mac that you really like and you want to be able to use Proton with that, you can, but you can't do that with the free service. You will need to have a paid tier to do that. I kind of wish they would make that available to everybody, but you know, I understand. I'm sure supporting ProtonMail Bridge costs money, and so that's kind of... The financial decision they had to make. But here's the kicker. Proton now has started to add a lot more than just mail. They've got a VPN. They've got a password manager. They've got an online calendar. They've got cloud drive. Uh, and soon, according to Andy, they're actually going to be rolling out uh, online photo storage as well, photo backup. They also just merged with or bought simple logins. So they've got built-in um, email aliases with their system. They really cover a lot of things. And I think if you're really, you know, if you're going to compete against Apple and Google and Microsoft, who have all these various services, you, you need to have a suite or, or a portfolio of, of services, secure services. And, and Proton is definitely doing that. And they're adding more all the time. So I hate to make this sound like a commercial, but I, I really do like this product. I'm not saying those other services like Tutanota are bad. I've used them. They are certainly usable. 
they all have pros and cons. Uh, I'm, most of those have free tiers that you, you, you could try or at least free trials. So, you know, if you really want to try to find the right one for you, absolutely check out some of the others. But I'm here to say, if you want to just hit the easy button, which I try to do with a lot of my advice, if I could just give you one thing that's just a go-to that should always just work for most people in most situations, I try to give that advice. Signal is one of them if you're looking for a messaging app. And I think I'm prepared now to say that Proton is the one for email and other things too. Uh, if you sign up for their, even their free account, you get some limited use of all of those services I just mentioned, including the VPN, which is rare. Most free VPNs I would not trust or would not recommend. Uh, Proton, I could. Now it's, it's limited, but basically what it means is with a free account, you can try all of these things. So Proton has various tiers. They have personal as well as enterprise, but you're, obviously you'll be probably looking at personal for yourself, but they also have a family plan now, which is something they hadn't had for a long time and I've been wanting them to add. And that is finally here. Uh, so if you have people in your family and it helps to have other people to talk to, you can use the family plan. And I think it's it looks to be like on a 12 month basis if you pay for it on an annual basis. Uh, it's about two and a half times as expensive as a personal account, but it handles up to six people. So that is something you could look at. What I'm really saying is give that a shot. See if you like it. If you want, uh, and you don't have to do this, um, but everybody who has a paid account has a, a referral link that they could give out. And I've given mine. I, I honestly don't need <laughs> referrals, but it also helps you. It's a, it's a two-way street. So if you use my referral link, which you can find uh, in the blog uh, that's linked to by the news and the show notes about this, kind of go to the bottom. Uh, and there's a big button there. If you use that button, it, that will use my referral link. And, and if you use that, then you can actually try out the, the the paid version. It's the only way I know of to get a free trial of the paid version of the Proton accounts, mail and otherwise. So if you want to do that, you can. And then if you do end up signing up, uh, I will get some sort of kickback. I don't think I need it because I think I've already got the ultimate plan, but it will help you as well. And then once, if you do do it, if you do sign up, then you will get your own referral link. You have to have a paid account to have a referral link. But once you do sign up, then you can use that link with all your friends and family. Uh, and then you guys can all share in the benefits of doing that amongst yourselves. So give it a shot. Really nothing to lose. You could, you've got the free version. You could even try all the paid version. And beyond just doing this for yourself, when we, when we use these services, when we try to get our friends and family to try them out as well, we are supporting these companies and we're supporting the entire marketplace for privacy products. So it's, it's more than just doing it for yourself, even though I, I think that's reason enough, but you know, when you find companies like Proton who are trying to do the right thing, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but we can support them. And you could support these other companies as well. If you like them better, that's great too. Uh, you could support them by trying out their products, referring your friends to them as well. The more people we get using these things, the more we create a marketplace for privacy products in general, the more we tell other companies that, Hey, privacy is important and we're willing to pay for it, at least in some cases. And that, that helps us basically manifest a better future. So it's, there's, it's more than just trying these things out. There's, there's a bigger reason for this. And that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm recommending this as my tip of the week. So there you go, your news, your mailbag finally, and my tip of the week. All right, that's going to do it this week. Thanks to my listeners who sent me those Dear Carry questions. You too can send me your questions. And again, I will answer them probably by email right away or, you know, within a reasonable amount of time. And then if I think they're helpful for the audience, I will read them on the air. You can find out more about that by going to fdsd.me slash Q&A. If you really want to, you can actually send me a, uh, an audio clip of you reading the question and I'll play that on the air. But you could just otherwise email it to me and uh, we'll go from there. 
Next week, I've got an interview with Corey Doctorow. That's a lot of fun. He is always an interesting and entertaining guest for the show. And he recently did a very interesting blog about how big tech companies are effectively ruining the internet. And the, the, he detailed the process through which that happens, which I think is just kind of fascinating. If you want to look back at some previous basically tips of the week, it usually corresponds with my blog articles. So if you go to firewalls.stopdragons.com, you can find a whole ton of articles there that go way back and you can search on them if you'd like. Uh, if you want those kind of things to come to you automatically in your inbox every two weeks, you can sign up for my newsletter. They're, my blog and the newsletter are usually the same. Not always, but usually. And of course, if you really want to dive into this stuff, check out the book. It's like 600 pages long and has over 200 tips in it. Lots of lots of great information. And it's very conversational and very easy to read, hopefully even entertaining. It should honestly, it should sound like like this podcast. I've had several people tell me that when they read the book, the people that know me, uh, that when they read the book, it said it sounds just like you, <laughs> like it sounds just like I'm talking to them. So if you're interested, check out the book. If you go to fdsd.me slash book or slash blog or slash newsletter, all of those things will take you to the appropriate spots. If you'd like to help me to help you and help others, you can support the cause and you can support the cause in several ways, some of them totally free. To find out more about that, go to fdsd.me slash support. All right, that, that is all my links. I've, I think I've listed them all now. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>